0: In the 13 years since Kevin Parker first posted Tame Impala music on MySpace, he's gone from being a member of Perth, Australia's psych rock scene to a huge Coachella headlining act in the States. In the process, he's developed the best of both worlds. The respect of all your favorite artists and legions of fans who dissect every lyric and sound on his albums. Like most of his past releases, Kevin did everything on the newest Tame Impala album, The Slow Rush, himself. All the singing, playing, production, mixing, everything. He tells Rick Rubin it's how he's most comfortable creating, alone. But in the five years between his last record and the new one, he was busy collaborating. With The Weeknd, Travis Scott, Kanye West, SZA, and a bunch of other people have talked about wanting to work with him too. Everyone from Dua Lipa to Christina and the Queens. Kevin connected recently with Rick on Zoom. He's been sheltering in place back in Australia ever since the coronavirus interrupted his tour after two sold-out nights at the Forum in L.A. He talks with Rick about how being perceived as a band started eating away at him early. And also asks Rick about making two albums he loves. Californication and Yeezus. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin and Kevin Parker. And you might hear roosters crowing in the background every once in a while, Unfortunately, sheltering in place sometimes means being surrounded by wild chickens.
2: What was your introduction to music? What's your, what are your first memories of, of listening to music as a kid?
3: Like, my dad was kind of a musician uh, by hobby, like, like, loved music, loved playing music. He, he played like a cover band, just playing kind of 60s, you know, Beach Boys, Beatles, Rolling Stones covers. And so he would always have sort of guitars and stuff lying on the house uh, and, in the, and in the garage, I guess.
2: The, of your dad's music was the first, your first memory of, was of him playing music or of the music he listened
3: to? Uh, the music we listened to because he would, he would always have music playing in the car. In fact, it's weird because there's this one song that I had that I this memory of always asking him to play. And I remember there was, just, every time I heard it, it was like, oh, you know, I must've been about four years old. Also, I was always like, dad, play this song. And to this day, I don't know what that song is. It's heartbreaking. Does your dad still remember? He he passed away about 10 years ago. So, um, so yeah, I don't think I don't think he would have remembered anyway though. But it's yeah. I have a feeling it's the shadows. It's a song by the shadows. Do you feel because... like if you randomly
2: came across the song in life, it would a light bulb would go yeah, off and you'd it,
3: say, There it, it is? It would probably trigger some sort of Weird uh, episode, (laughs) you know. Like wherever I was, I'd probably, you know, just sort of stop and break down in some way. But at the same time, I think it might be a song that I know at the moment by The Shadows, because I have a feeling it was instrumental, and I know that it was really like touching and melancholic, which which kind of points directly to The Shadows.
2: And then, what was your first music that was yours?
3: Probably Nirvana. You know, like I, I just—I I would have been about eleven years old. My friend played me vinyl because we we were like the first kids in our class to get into music. You know, like I'd go around his house every Tuesday or something like that after school, and we'd kind of like discover rock music. You know, it was kind of it was this like epiphany, absolute revolution of life. Like just like jumping around the room. That you know that 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 whole that whole kind of discover it, that whole story which is you know probably everyone but uh yeah I mean nirvana and then it was kind of just a a, a cascade of smashing pumpkins silver chair anything with distorted guitars anything with drop d tuning but th- but there was always the kind of part of that music that was kind of um it wasn't just like angsty it was I like, kind of discovered the emotion in it like 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 smashing pumpkins you know because smashing pumpkins has that that real, that real kind of sensitivity to it, even though it's just like blaring wall of sound. You know what I mean? Do you remember when you first started started experimenting with making music? Uh yeah. Well, my brother played drums, so he older, older brother or younger brother? Yeah, he's two years older. Um, so he had a drum kit, which I just thought was incredible. I would like so, sort of you know just watch him, you know, and it was kind of like wow. So obviously, I immediately. Wanted to copy him. Uh, we had this tape deck in the the music room, which was kind of just a room in the house. We had a tape deck that had a microphone input. Do you remember those, like kind of like cassette uh, cassette decks? And for some reason, they would just be like a quarter inch jack in the corner, it just says microphone, you know. <laughs> and uh, so we plugged a microphone into it and just recorded ourselves playing drums, just to sort of see what it'd sound like. And then um, we had this little keyboard. Sitting in the room as well, like a little Casio kind of thing. And, uh, and one day, I was kind of just playing along to myself, playing drums with the cat. Like, I didn't even know how to play. Key. I was just hitting random notes. You know, sound sounded like a nursery rhyme, probably. And then I noticed in the room there was a second cassette deck with the same thing. So I stuck a mic into I stuck the mic into that and recorded myself just hitting these keys over the top of me playing drums and listened back to that tape. And it was me playing keyboard. <laughs> To my, It was me playing two things at once. It blew my mind.
2: Blew How my were you mind. then?
3: Uh, still would have been about 11. Amazing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah.
2: When did the idea of uh, starting to do it with the ideas of making it for other people to hear start?
3: Well, I mean, like like every young teenage musician, I had, like, grandiose dreams of being a rock star especially because my favorite band was Silverchair, and they were only like 15 16 and i was sort of like 12 13 by that point i was like they? i was like they're fucking like 15 16 that means i've got like two three years like two three years i can i can still get to where they're they are i can be them you know
2: Sorry. you think it had to do with how young they were because so because they were such little kids
3: yeah for whatever reason whether it was because they you know, because they were, like, young Australian boys or because, like, they're kind of... They would have been in a similar headspace, you know? that They kind of, like, their approach to it would have been uh, in the same realm as mine.
2: How did you decide to end up being a
3: solo artist as opposed to being in a band? Uh, well, I always... I played in bands the whole time in high school. Like, I was obsessed with the idea of playing in bands, but I also had the making music thing at home. Since before I accidentally multi track myself that time. I was playing in a band. It was kind of this, um, uh, this music school that I went to uh, where, like, they teach you an instrument. Mine was drums. And then every Saturday morning they get all the kids from different instrument, like, tuitions and put them, and put them in bands. So they put me in a the, in the band. So I, I, was, I was in a band at age 11, which I fucking loved. I could not wait. I could not wait for Saturday morning to come around. Because it was like, you know, playing music with other kids was just this, another mind-blowing thing. Um, But I also, but and then so I slowly got better at that and I slowly got better at recording music by myself. And the two worlds never really met. Like even, even at the start of like Tame Impala, when I was sort of like 21, 22, we were playing songs that I'd written for us to play live And they were different to the ones I was recording at home that we even had on MySpace. It took a while for the two worlds to kind of converge, if that makes sense, because I just didn't know how. I didn't know how to translate what I was kind of doing at home and like expressing on my own. Because that music was like super kind of, I guess, I guess sensitive is the word, um, and kind of nuanced and genreless. But the music I was making in bands, I mean, like that was music was more kind of like what we had listened to as a group, like kind of more angsty, like heavy kind of stuff.
2: At the time that you started um, making music with the idea of putting it up on MySpace, what would you say the influences were? What were you listening to? And what might, might have been who would you have hoped to get to play with, for example?
3: That was around the time that I was super kind of. Um, uh, obsessed with 60s music so it was kind of it was all like The Doors Jefferson Airplane I didn't have a lot of kind of like modern day idols um, just because of like that was a kind of uh, lifestyle I was leading and like I was living in a share house where other people were kind of just we would just permanently listen to 70s psych rock constantly um, I mean the, there was this band called Dung Yen that I was super into uh, I still am to this day that's that's it still just gives me goosebumps, you know? Yeah, it's and, and like it's funny because I listen now and I can hear um my first album all over it, you know. <laughs> it's something I didn't really notice at the time consciously, but just like the yeah.
2: And then how would you describe how the second album differed from the first?
3: Uh it was it was a hundred times more indulgent, which is what I wanted, you know, because um I'd had this kind of like Surge of confidence that I didn't have uh, previously. Prior, you know, like when I made it in a speaker, I was just kind of like shy stoner kind of, you know, and uh, and you know, like the, we we had a lot of had a lot of success the first album. We went on tours and all this kind of stuff, and so I suddenly realised that um, it kind of validated my. Approach and my kind of like what I wanted to do. So I, so lonerism was kind of like just blowing that wide open.
2: How did the third album, when that came, how was that
3: different? Uh, well, I mean, the second album, I still didn't fully know what I was doing. I kind of like, I got Ableton and I, and instead of just sort of uh, it being the corner of my bedroom in a share house that I made it for the second album, I was like, fuck it. All right, I'm going to dedicate to this you know so I set up a studio in a in a, in a room in my share house uh, it, it got it it's got it's my studio got its own full room for for once um and I would just make hours and hours of I, I just I like was using synths organs fucking anything you know I was kind of, it was kind of just that you know that kind of typical uh moment for a solo artist where they where they make their uh you know, their self-indulgent opus. It really was that, looking back. Like, at the time, I was like, fuck, yeah, you know. And it seemed like the first two albums, the, the, um,
2: the arrangement seemed more complicated.
3: Yeah, that's probably true. Because in the third one, I was kind of, like, influenced by a lot of kind of R&B um, and electronic music. So I was kind of embracing the way that that music was made more. Do you know what I mean? Sort of, like, finding a loop and kind of, like, Almost kind of making, making a beat like a you know in the in like the hip hop sense, like sort of just having like a four bar loop and just sort of making the structure out of that, rather than going like okay we're going to be going with this bit for a while we're going to jam on these chords and then like do a huge drum fill and go into these chords and then like this thing for
2: five and a half bars. Do you, do you remember what the music that inspired that switch? Like what would have been the things you were listening to? that made you want to make more
3: program-based music? I mean, like, it was always music that I was into, but just music that I'd kind of shied away from making because I figured, like, my world was weird, expansive psych rock. And, like, if I tried to do more clean, focused pop kind of stuff, I assumed it wouldn't work, you know? So Currents was the album where I'd kind of, like, just went, fuck it, I'm going to try it, you know? Try and make kind of, like, Disco R and B kind of like really the beats are like super strong and heavy.
2: Would you would you consider the
3: first two as a pair and the last two as a pair? No, I've never thought of it that way. Um, I don't know, maybe some people would. I guess with the third one, third one where I was is the one where I was kind of like, I knew that there would be fans of the first two that turn their noses up. Like I was ready for that. Do you know what I mean? I was kind of like. I, I decided, you know, kind of definitively that, that, um, that I wanted to change my sound and I knew that some people wouldn't like it, you know what I mean? That was kind of that part of my career where I, where I kind of, like, sucked it up, do you know what I mean? It's a great thing to
2: do early on. If you'd have made four albums that sounded in the same vein and then the fifth one was sure. different, it would have probably alienated more people. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's yeah. like you did it early enough in the trajectory where you let people, let the audience know that, hey, we're going to go on different rides and I want you to come with me. And um, yeah. I think people are more forgiving of the style changes if you prepare them for it.
3: Yeah, yeah. If, if, uh, if, if change is one of the constants. <laughs> yeah, it's like if, if the Ramones' fifth
2: album all of a sudden was a, a you know, programmed dance record, I don't yeah. think anybody would have been excited about
3: that. Right. And also something I realized was that I mean what's funny is that the first album and the second one I like as well Tame Impala was always kind of perceived as a band and I was kind of cool with that because uh, like because it's it sounded like a band people were like oh you know it's uh it sounds like a bunch of guys jamming, you know. Like I love this. I love the. I love, I love these guys. You know, I love the way they jam out. Um, but I kind of like it. Kind of, it was eating away at me that it wasn't like the truth. <laughs> um, and also because, and also like, I wanted, I wanted people to know that it was kind of more of a solo recording project because I realized that solo artists get away with completely changing their sound a lot more than bands do you know like with someone like uh like Beck you know Beck can just take a complete left turn with one album you know um and everyone will be like oh well that's that's Beck and that's what he does but like with a band it's kind of like I think I feel like a few things have to happen like everyone in the band or everyone in the group rather has to like decide on it together which is more difficult you know they all have to be sort of like moving in the same direction whereas people you know people especially as time goes by people like drift
2: apart when you decided to give the project a name originally as opposed to your name was it the was it the opposite of what you just said was the original impression was for it to seem like a band
3: yes absolutely in fact the record label when they signed us didn't even know we were a I didn't. I didn't know it was me that was playing drums and guitars and bass and multi-jacking. Like they, we, I, I, I outright lied to them when we met up. Like the 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 contract that we signed was for three of us. Um, I think, uh, yeah, because I just I, I I didn't want to say it was just me, you know, um, for a number of reasons. Like number one, I was kind of shy. I just, I you know, it's really weird because. Looking back, it's kind of like, why the fuck didn't you just, like, own it, you know? Um, But also, like, the kind of music scene I was in was a very communal scene, you know? Like, we lived to jam and lived to, like, play gigs. So, like, for the thing that finally came out of that scene to be just one, like, a solo project thing, it felt kind of wrong. We, we, like, there'd be, it would be the kind of this like scene that we kind of had going in Perth, where it's kind of like a bunch of us, but there weren't that many people, but there, we made tons of bands out of it. You know, so there'd be like ten people, and there'd be like six bands with like different combinations of those people. Just just because, you know, like hey, why the fuck, why the fuck not?
0: When we come back, we'll have more with Kevin Parker.
1: Apple Card, issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval.
4: Terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, Tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings,
0: Chris Christofferson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore Sue Brewer and the new scripted audible original The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true, untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed the Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer songwriters, Wounded Souls, Wayward Upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and T.J. Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. We're back with Rick and Kevin Parker. It
2: feels like it was like four or five years between the yeah. third yeah. album and the new album.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah, during that
2: four years, you didn't you didn't write songs or make any music?
3: I did. I absolutely did. But I just didn't see it as Tame Impala. And it kind of seemed more like a drag to... Think of a song as Tame Impala because it like every time I thought of a song, if I imagine it as Tame Impala, it came loaded like the idea was loaded with all these kind of things that came with it. Like it just seemed so much more magical and wondrous to think of it as a song I could collaborate with a different artist on, you know, like me making Tame Impala music now or and always, it's like it's a deep, dark. Hole that I have to go into, and you know, like come out. Like it drains, it drains every bit of me, you know. Um, And I realized that at the end, like working at the end of the third album, you know, I've I've, I I always dreamt of making a Tame Impala album where I didn't feel completely spent at the end of it, like completely drained and completely like depressed, even. And I kind of realized after a while that that was inevitable, and that was the only way it could be.
2: In the course of those four years before you started working on the new album did it reveal itself that it was time or was it a decision you made or did one particular track come up where you felt like, oh, this could be the beginning of something?
3: Uh, It was a combination of the first two. You know what it was? It was more like it was the process of it Um, because I'd fallen in love so much with this idea of music being a... Collaborative thing, you know, like the energy in a room when you're working with other people. Like, you know, I started working with Travis Scott, someone like that. Like, the energy in the room is just so electric, you know. And I was like, "Hey, I can, I can have that energy on my own too. I just have to, I just have to uh, um, embrace it," you know. And so then I started. So, like, the way I started working on the album again was by like pretending I was in a recording session with a bunch of other people you know staying up late just getting getting drunk and stoned you know and kind of just having a party by myself I guess just uh embracing that kind of way that when you're on the in the depths of working by yourself you feel like many people
2: do you feel like you're uh, Channelling particular people, or is it more of a general feeling of this is not me, it's someone else? Or do you envision? Oh, Travis is here with me. What would
3: he do? Both, but in different times. It's like me imagining I'm someone else is kind of more when I get stuck. You know, it's like what would what would Pharrell Williams do in this moment? You know, actually, it's funny. Wh- one of the one of the things that got me inspired? I was what I started some reason i started watching um there's this like six part uh youtube video series on the making of justified and it's it's it almost seems like leaked footage because it's just fly on the wall someone's just holding a video camera the entire time it starts from like them in the in justin timberlake's private jet and they're flying to the recording session but most of it is just someone sitting on the couch like Filming Pharrell and Justin kind of messing around, like having a laugh, uh, and like making this song. So you can see Pharrell kind of piece together, um, uh, Senorita. So, like, it's, there's like, you know, like a 20 minute patch of him just sort of playing drums. Well, it's that's not how it starts out, but he, he slow it seems slowly converge on the beat that ends up being Senorita, you know. <laughs> And he's like, okay, gets up and he's like, hey, okay, loop that back, da da da. And um, I don't know why, but for some reason, that kind of just made me think about how I make music, and it kind of it reminded me. In fact, one of the songs on the album kind of like came out sounding similar to something I would imagine Pharrell and Justin would be doing for, for, for Justin Timberlake, which is the song "Breathe Deeper." The first uh, the the beat from the start of "Breathe Deeper." was kind of me pretending I was, I was Pharrell and Justin making Justified.
2: Let me ask a specific question. You, you often have uh, little intro, signature intros that are not necessarily part of the track. You know, like uh, the drums. it'll either be a different beat or it sounds really different and it sets up the, the song, but it doesn't feel like it's part of the song. Do
3: those happen after? I guess that's just me trying to um, just create those kind of moments of like jolting into the track. You know, like in the way that uh, you hear in hip hop, in the way that like, like just cutting to something completely different is sometimes one of the most satisfying things. And so sometimes it can be an accident, like I accidentally, accidentally play the track wrong for example, the start of back uh, feels like we're gonna go backwards on on lonerism. Was me, I had it on loop. I had one beat on loop uh, that's kind of like, you know, the last uh, beat of the chorus or something. You know, I had it, and it went like, drew, 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 and I was like, oh shit, you know? That's one of like, I. I don't have many happy accidents in this year. That's not true. I do. I have a lot. But um, that's one, just one of those happy accidents, you know. So I guess I'm just always on the lookout for things that can, can sort of like take you one way and then quickly back the other, you know what I
2: mean? And so more, more often, some accident might happen somewhere during the course of making the song and you might think, oh, maybe I can use this piece at some point. And then you, and then you figure out how to use it or... Um, Or might you have a finished song and think, okay, now I want to, I need an intro and I don't want
3: it to be like the rest. I mean, those kind of things, those kind of moments, those accidents—they're almost. It's almost something that I rely on happening, you know. And because, like, you know, I, uh, I like to record pretty late at night. Sometimes I like to get kind of just spaced out, and you know, in those times, I'm not very musically proficient, you know. But because because you're not. Consciously aware of everything you're doing. It frees you from that, the boring, straight down the line cognitive thinking that you do. You know, it's that kind of... um, So it's almost um, like your subconscious is involved in the writing process. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I try try to bring that as much as possible because I'm someone that naturally, I'll try and process everything. You know, I'm probably more... um, uh naturally an overthinker than I'd like to be. You know? So like smoking weed in a recording session, that's kind of just something I do to stop myself from overthinking. Cause that's 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 a time when I'm just like, oh yeah, that's cool. Let's go with that. You know, like oh that's sick. Don't think about it. Don't fucking think about it, you know? Not that not that not that you need to be stoned to to like to get into that kind of space, but all those kind of times, it's it's also like like being being in a, in a heightened emotional state, like being super feeling super emotional in whichever direction is also something that brings out that where you're not you're not thinking about whether something's good. It's just it just it hits a spot of you because you're feeling depressed or because you're feeling elated or or, or you know particularly joyous or particularly sad. Those are times when you don't overthink things too. Are all of these things we're talking about all instrumental at at this point? Where we're
2: at in talking about making music and those feelings that you get excited about—are we only talking about instrumental at this point?
3: Uh, No, it can happen all at once. I mean, in fact, like most of the ideas I have for songs are, are ideas I've had not even in the studio, and that's kind of the the other thing about catching you off guard is that songs come to me when i'm not thinking about writing a song you know in fact if i consciously decide that i want to write a song i can pretty you can pretty much guarantee it's going to be the shitest song i've ever written i've i've often tried to um like like research like when it is that I that an idea will come to me and like the only thing i can um that i've noticed uh, like a pattern or whatever is like going from like a loud place, or like a place where there's a lot of energy, into us, into a just like ste- like walking outside, stepping outside from a room of people, suddenly going from like lots of shit going on, thinking about, it, and then suddenly nothing, and then my brain has to find some way of filling that void that suddenly appeared. I, I think that's something <laughs> that's a yeah, that sounds great. The fact that
2: you notice that is really um, it's it's a beautiful note. And uh, mm. really helpful for you. That I'm. I'm so happy that you you realized
3: it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I like to think I'm a sciencey person. So I'm always like, how do, how does that happen? Not not so that I can uh, fabricate it, or not that I can like force it to happen, but just just because I want to know. You know. I'm just curious. Like, what makes me think of ten songs in three days sometimes, and then nothing for five months. Okay, so now let's say you just left a, a
2: loud room where there's a lot going on. You stepped outside and it's silent. What might a, one of these seed ideas look like? What would be the first thing that would
3: come? Uh, it's like flicking on the radio.
2: Melody, lyric,
3: both? Uh, both all, all at the same time. Yeah, it's like, it's like, it's, it's like flicking on the radio. And it's like being on the radio because it's not, like a, it's not like starting the song at the start. It's not like a song starts, you know, 0.00, song starts. It's like coming in halfway through a chorus, you know. Yeah, it's a vibe. You, you pick up on the vibe. Yeah, and then, and then I just do my best. I do my best to get to a place where I can record it before I forget it. Um, so I've obviously got like 100 voice memos on my phone. It'll be like a two-bar or one bar um bit of music. So the drums will the drums will be the drums. I mean, let's Bye. let's try and find one. Um, but but it's it's rare that I'll listen back to it and decide that it was good enough. Just I don't know why. It's like someone singing your ears it. like, hey man, what about this? It goes, da da, na
1: And
3: uh Sometimes at the end of my note, I like feel compelled to go record this. Just fucking record it. You, you. This won't sound like much if you listen to it, but record it. Um, no, play, play one. I'd love to hear
4: it. Put
2: it up to the
4: mic.
3: This is very candid. I hope you
2: know. Mm.
4: Two,
3: three, four. <laughs> so that's obviously like the kind of the rhythm section. And then skipping, that's the vocal melody. Um, yeah. So I guess like often I'll go back and just like force myself to record one of those. I haven't recorded that one, that's the first time I've listened to it. I'd say about 90, nine things out. It's nine out of ten ideas that I have. I'll forget because I'll be meaning to like record up my voice memo, but someone will be next, I'll be like talking to someone, and then we'll get into a car with the car radio playing, and then it'll absolutely just wipe. It'll wipe whatever I'm thinking. You know,
2: you got to um, catch them absolutely. fast.
3: Uh, absolutely, and 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 easily forgotten too. And I always feel bad about going. I always feel a bit kind of ego about it, uh, egomaniac about going like, hang on, guys, can everyone just shut up? Can everyone just shut up, please? I've got an idea. You know, like I, I could never do that in a room full of people or, or, or with, with anyone I'm with.
2: Here's a suggestion go to the
3: bathroom. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Hey, but there's music playing in, her, in bathrooms sometimes. But, but yeah, no.
2: You know, Neil Young has a rule that uh, regardless of what is going on in the moment where he is or what he's doing. If a song comes to him, everything stops.
3: Yeah,
2: I love it. And he gets that idea down before that goes away because he knows it's fleeting and we don't have yeah. control of them coming. Like you said, sometimes you, get, you might get a bunch in a couple of days, but then you might go months without, without getting another one. So they really are valuable. And they're also valuable because they're all different and you never know which one is the great one. You know, yeah. like maybe one of the best ones evaporated.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I, I firmly believe, I, I you know, genuinely believe that I could have songs that are my best songs or whatever. You know, like there's definitely things that have disappeared that, that would have been great, but that's just life, you know. Okay, well, I'm going to give you permission to always either ask
2: people to be quiet or to wow. uh, or to invite you to leave where you are to go capture these ideas because they're okay. good to the world. You're doing, a service right. to
3: the, you're doing a service to the world. Wow, that's, that's actually really powerful to hear from you, Rick Rubin. Can I get a little sound bite from you saying like, hey, everyone, can you get the fuck out? Kevin needs to record something. <laughs> just so I can play it to them. you like, like, hey. I will make one for you and send it. Amazing. That would be amazing. Just like, hey, guys, Rick Rubin here. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <sighs> I love when it. When we come back, we'll have more with Kevin Parker. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash Boar's nest. We're back with Rick and Kevin Parker from Tame Impala.
2: Do you listen to music for fun a lot?
3: I don't, and and I want to more. I have less and less since I started making music. Since music became the thing that I do, I've been more and more preoccupied with making it. So I haven't given myself time to listen to it. Like it's extremely difficult for me to justify putting on an album to listen to over potentially thinking of a song. Because for me, like if I put on an album, that's an hour that I won't have an idea. You know? I'm that obsessed with coming up with a new with with like finding a new song like uh, 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 making a new song because making a new song makes me feel like nothing else in the world there's no other feeling in the world that, that I get from um the feeling of starting a new song that I think has really great potential sadly more so than than listening to something that that is equally that is, that is great, you know. But but I do want to force myself to listen to more music. I heard uh, um, Tyler, the creator, in his Nardwire interview the other day, he said, like, he wakes up every morning and listens to two hours of music he hasn't heard before. And I was like, fuck, that's amazing. I want to do that. You know, just like... Yeah.
2: Have you ever um, started a song with another song in mind?
3: Um, like a song that already exists? Like a... Song that's already been released. Yeah, just like
2: a song like uh song that you, that's you mean. a song from the sixties, and you think, wow, this is my inspiration. What would I do that was that would be in this vein? Not I'm not suggesting copying it, but I'm saying being inspired by it to want to make something that makes you feel like that feels.
3: Uh, not that I know of, but um something that I do sometimes kind of subconsciously. There might be a song. Um, playing in the background, like you know, and uh, like on the radio or something, and then I'll, and then like they'll get switched off, and then I'll think of something that goes on from there. Like like the, I'll have the rhythm and maybe the key in my mind just subconsciously. And I'll just start singing a song that goes on from that, as though as though the song kept going but it changed. There's an example of that, which I don't know, if I I feel like I'm going to get busted. Um, Well, you know what, fuck it. It was uh, was 2012. No, uh, there's a song. Well, my song feels like we only go backwards. Um, I must have been listening to the... I've traced it back. I think I was listening to this song by Beach House um, earlier that morning. It's called Walk in the Park, I think. And it's funny because... It's the same tempo and the same key, and possibly even similar chords. But it was for me, like at the time, it was kind of a, it was too much of a coincidence. And I'm pretty sure it was around that time that song came out. So I'm pretty sure that I'd done that with that song. Kind of like that song had stopped, and then I'd kind of just like my brain had continued it on, same tempo and same key. You know, maybe even like there's probably even like a little motif in there that's the same kind of combo of two or three notes. Do you know what I mean? Um, so that's something that happens.
2: Yeah, I don't think there's anything... Uh, uh, I think all great artists are heavily inspired by other artists and it's only yeah. good.
3: Yeah, what's funny is that when I say that now, it doesn't seem that bad. <laughs> but uh, but I think back then I used to be so precious about like the sacredity of melodies and the sacredness of of artistry being being wholly, um, wholly, yes, like, WH, da 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 inspired and not influenced by anything. So, like, back then I would have thought that was terrible. But now now that I say it out loud, it's kind of, that's just one of the ways that, like, a great song can come about. And then especially, like, I discovered, well not discovered, but, like, I appreciated hip-hop more and, like, sampling and stuff like that. So, you know, that's, that's a, another whole realm of taking music that already exists yeah I
2: think creative use of a sample to create something new is it's just a new form it's like it's a yeah. great new form of creativity a beautiful way to express yourself to yeah. flip something for a new use like recycling it's really cool
3: yeah it's also a, a completely other a complete other category of skill that can be mastered you know I guess that's something that I didn't realize early on when I started you know when I was like making suck rock and stuff not that I have used, not that I've sampled myself, but like, I used to think like, someone's done that already, like, how can you take credit for that. But finding that in itself and realizing how it can be reimagined and like represented is extremely difficult, especially when there's an absolute, there's a universe of music out there, like finding the right thing to use and how to use it is something that I, that I I admire extremely now. Yeah,
2: that's, it, it can happen even, I mean, even with cover songs. A different artist can take the same song that someone else did and just through their interpretation of it, completely change the meaning of the song. You know, it's, yeah. it's um, there's so much that can happen in the personalization process of
3: music. Fully. Fully. Like that, uh, that Mad World song, you know, it's, it's a cover. Yeah. It's really that really somber song. Yes. And it's like, how could this song have ever been anything else other than this, you know? Yes, the, co- the cover version is spectacular. Yeah, And if you listen back to the original, it's
2: cool, but the cover yeah. is, is, is it.
3: Yeah, exactly.
2: Great example. The first Bee Gees hit was a song that they wrote for um, Otis Redding. Do you know the story? No. No, I want to know to that. To Love Somebody.
3: Oh, okay. To Love Somebody. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Everybody, I love you. They wrote yep. that for Otis Redding. And then Otis Redding died and never got to record it. And then they recorded wow. it themselves and put it out. But when you hear that song, you don't think of Otis Redding, you think of the Bee Gees. It's like, it's, yeah. it's a classic BG song. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's a, yeah. a great example of a song with, in their mind, that was for someone else.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I like hearing stories like that. It's kind of comforting for me to know that uh, there is that kind of uncertainty that artists have as well, with, with where a song should end up. Anything else you want to talk about? Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm tempted to ask you about everything you've done, but I don't know. That's probably something you've done a million times. What was, uh, what was recording Californication like? Just because that, that, that was one of the albums that, like, was big for me. That was kind of like my first year of high school album that I was kind of obsessed with.
2: Well, with the, the, typically the way it worked with the Chili Peppers is we would, they would write songs on their own for a long period of time and then we would yeah. get together in pre-production yeah. and they would play me songs in various stages of, of completion yeah. and we would talk about them and discuss strengths and weaknesses and how they could maybe be better and whether they had yeah. too many parts or whether they had maybe not enough parts. Yeah. and um, And then we would usually, by the time of that album, really work up the songs as a live band in the, in the rehearsal room so that when we went into the studio, it was purely just getting the performance. Like it, it, wow. Everything was worked out completely just with the players. Wow. Um, maybe not all of the words, Yeah. but I think back then, maybe many of the words were already written where hmm. they could perform it live and wow. The, and the goal of that really was to 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 not confuse the writing process with the performance process. So that when we were uh-huh. in the studio, we really knew what we were doing. And and still we might play the same song a hundred times. Yeah. To get it to just come together in that in that way where it feels like it's the perfect version, but it's also got mistakes in it. And it's, you know, it's natural. It's just, it sounds like a yep. uh, band on a really good night. Do you yeah, know yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't I sound know. like machines playing it. It sounds like the best night that they played that on yeah. tour. This was, we happened to catch the best one. So gotcha. we would play things over and over with that idea. And some would happen wow. very quickly. Some would take a long time. And For then... So. And then all of the overdubs would happen after that, and we would make decisions of things to try, and we would usually record many, many, many more songs than whatever was on the album. Pretty much always the case.
3: Wow! Yeah. Like wow. I would
2: say, for every album we made, there were at least twice as many songs as the songs
3: that were on the album. And what what, what happened to them? So um, that did that eventually come out on B side on kind of some have some haven't. Wow. That's 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 crazy because like for me that's that's such a wild thing to think because for me like I just make the songs that I need for an album like a song will will not get past well it won't get past anywhere close to halfway finished unless I know it's going to be on the album so I I rarely ever have B sides of any kind so the idea of to think of like a, a, a completely a complete other. Like a parallel universe album that never existed. That's funny because it's sung on Californication. But um, but I guess that, like, I guess that, I guess that's how most artists. Have you anymore.
2: noticed? Have you noticed how a song, when you first get excited about it, and you think, oh, I, I, you know, I've worked on these songs, but this, this new one is my favorite of the batch so far. And then, as you work further, it maybe doesn't become your favorite of the batch. And then another song that you think, "Well, this is pretty good, but maybe not my favorite song that as you continue working on it, it becomes your favorite song. Have you ever had that experience or no?
3: Well, my thing is like for a song to make an album it it has to at some point have been my favorite song ever. Like I have to have had a moment with that song like it has to like for at least a day, it has to have been just like my favorite thing I've ever done, you know. It can never be like just for some reason. Like I, I, I won't uh, bother going through with a song unless at some point I've thought that it's like potential is limitless, or it could be the greatest thing I've done. Like and like greatest, not just greatest. Like oh, it could you know be the be the most critically acclaimed or whatever. But just just the, just the greatest. You know, like I guess for me the thing is like from starting a song and. Having all these and just thinking it's and having a moment with it and, and, and um, um, feeling great about it, it's kind of just like a race to the finish line to get the song finished and have me still feel the same way about it, or just for me to still love it. You know, do you do you finish? Um, do you always finish one song before moving on to the next song? No, no. Uh, I mean, like hours for the hours up until mastering. I'm still writing lyrics. Oh for, for 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 a song for like up until you know a, a few hours before it's done of like a year of working on it. Uh I'm sort of like writing lyrics, writing and recording lyrics and editing drums and you know so I, I do everything at once because I'm my attention span is too short to or my kind of like my work I got I have horrible work ethic. So for me to sit down and do like one task until it's done is extremely rare you know I'll just I'll sort of like be recording a bass line for it and get sort of like halfway down there and go oh I'm gonna do something else now you know I'm gonna stay because that, that, that's the luxury of doing it by myself I can do it without it derailing the session you know so I can kind of just like oh you know now now I want to think of some lyrics or now I want to do, do a bit of mixing you know or I want to edit some drums you know I'll do everything at once and then which which can which can sort of like create this sort of like complete mess of and and can make me feel can can make you lost in the progress of a song. So sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't know where I am with this song. I don't know. I don't know if it's almost finished or if it's nowhere near there, you know? So I'm kind of just like in lost in this in this uh in the in the woods. You know, do you ever do no, too? No, do you ever go too far and have to backtrack? Yes, I mean I hate back, I hate backtracking, but uh but yes. Um which is interesting I was I something I wanted to I've always wanted to know and like maybe maybe you're not able to say cuz of, you know, it's like a uh, secret or whatever. But um with Jesus, you know, cuz there's the myth that he there's a story that he came to you sort of a couple of weeks before it was done and you kind of went like, let's get rid of that, let's get rid of that and, like, strip it down, which to me, like, that story is, like, is this holy grail of discipline, like, executive discipline to say, like, we don't need any of this, you know, because for me that's, it's 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 extremely hard. If I recorded a part for a song, it's extremely difficult for me to say, it doesn't need to be in the song because, like, my brain's like, "Oh no, there's a, there's a there'll, there'll be a place for it," you know. So my songs can end up being like so extremely dense, and I'm just sort of finding a way to sort of like fit in there in there. But to me, like, the greatest strength and the greatest ability in production is to say all of this stuff here doesn't need doesn't need to be, you know. So I I I, I really want to know how that like happened. Well, um.
2: You have to be ruthless in the edit,
3: and uh, right. I I like that word ruthless.
2: It's the right word because you have, you have to be comfortable taking your favorite part out of a song. If it doesn't, if it doesn't serve the song, the most important thing is that what what's presented is is the best that it could possibly be, and it's not a collection of things in that one song. It's. What makes this song the best it could possibly be? And anything that doesn't need to be there needs to go. And I would say just the opposite in terms of, um, I never feel bad about taking stuff out. But then again, you know, from the beginning, that's always been my, um, my instinct is to have the least amount of stuff, to get the idea across with the least amount of stuff. It doesn't mean that that's, um, I'll say that that's an organizing principle for the way I work, but then sometimes we'll decide, oh, let's put a bunch of stuff on this and that's the way we like it. It's fine. So it's, yeah. not, uh, it's not a rule to uh, live by, but it's a, it's a way of thinking. And, the, and there's a reason for it, which is when you clear as much space as possible, the things that are left, you really hear them. You really feel their yeah. personality. Totally. The, the, there's less um, there's less jockeying for, for your attention totally. so each thing gets to live in its own space and that space is what makes things sound so beautiful it's, the, it's really you know the old, the old uh, adage the quiet between the notes
3: yeah exactly man that's, 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 that's truly remarkable because for me it's like it would be torture to do something like that you know like the idea for me, because I'm listening to you, I'm like, oh, fuck, you know? Because my brain, the place my brain goes to is like, how can a song be the best that it can be without your favorite bit in the song? Well, that, um, the favorite bit might end up being a different song. Yeah,
2: true. True. It's like, um, what serves the song? Same, it's like, it, it's, uh, it's one of the things that I learned early on working with bands who are really great players is yeah. that most great players want to show that they're great players. Uh-huh. And there, is, there isn't much room for that Time. in recording. In recording, it really is what needs to be there to best serve the song. It's not in service. Oh, unless, yeah. unless, of course, it's you know, a Guitar Hero album and it's really yeah. about showing the dexterity of the player. No, but if, yeah. it's about, if it's about the songs, it's never about the coolest part. It's about how the parts interact to make the greatest whole and yeah. sometimes the thing that's really cool ends up being a distraction
3: yeah yeah it's true yeah i mean i guess that's that's kind of like the kind of philosophy that i'm de- like developing in myself at the moment you know because like so much of my music has been this kind of like this like layered psych rock kind of symphonies you know like with Lonerism was kind of like the pinnacle of that where I, because it was so indulgent it was like oh I'm gonna do this synth melody oh I'm gonna do this fucking guitar line oh this bass line's gonna come in here you know and it was like packed in the pads were packed in so it's like a really sonically it's a really interesting album to listen to because nothing really jumps out at you except all these bits which is it's simultaneously what's Wrong with it, but also what's kind of like charming and beautiful about it, but uh you know like th- that kind of discipline that you're talking about is something that i'm that uh, that i that I see is as, as, as uh kind of one of the greatest wisdoms to have you know being able to sense what uh what what, what a piece of music needs and what it doesn't needs doesn't need and and the idea that maybe for a particular project you want it to be super dense.
2: And, yeah, you know, just, stepping no, on right. itself and that's, the, that's, the, that's what makes that project that project. That's fine. So it's, not, it's not like a, everything has to be that way. It's more of a... No, you're right. It's in the bag of tricks. It's in the bag of tricks.
3: Right. Gotcha. Yeah. T- yeah. No, for sure. I guess I just feel like, yeah, that, that, that's kind of like a... Because it, it's a new and wonderful thing for me. It's kind of... It's one of those things I'm curious about, you know? Well, the next time that we're both um, in the same place and, our, uh, and the
2: world is a world where we're allowed to be in the same room, mm-hmm. then let's, uh, let's get together and listen to music together and I bet it'll be fun. Fuck
0: yeah, man, that sounds good.
2: I'd
3: love that.
0: Thanks to Kevin Parker for jumping on Zoom to talk with Rick about his new album. Be sure to check out The Slow Rush, along with our other favorite Tame Impala songs on a playlist we created at brokenrecordpodcast.com. You should also know we'll be taking a little break over the next two weeks, but we'll be back May 19th with new episodes for you. In the meantime, stay in touch with us on Instagram at the Broken Record Pod. Shoot us a message if there's an interview you really want to hear us do. And dive into old episodes of the podcast you might have missed on whatever podcast app you use or on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash podcast. Broken Record is produced with help from Jason Gambrell, Milo Bell, Leah Rose, and Martin Gonzalez for Pushkin Industries. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Thanks for listening.